0: Mozambique Mozambique was Frontline Fellowship's very first mission field and Mozambique has changed a lot to get an appreciation of the answered prayers and the wonderful work that's able to be done in Mozambique today. one has got to understand where it's come from and uh, our mission grew out of a prayer fellowship of soldiers in the South African Army and the first mission field God put before us was Mozambique, uh, the old Portuguese East African. When I came back to my first mission to Mozambique, in April 1982, my pastor, Reverend Dr. Watson, challenged me, many missionaries tell them what they've done. I would like to know what you've learned. And that challenge has continued to inspire me to look deeper, to discover what God is saying, in and through the many obstacles and frustrations and conflicts, and through every country that I've had the privilege of ministering in. It also led me to ask many questions. I've filled up many notebooks, interviewing missionaries and pastors and refugees, chaplains and evangelists, teachers and survivors of the trustees, prisoners, soldiers, policemen, and even several heads of state. The word to my first high school history teacher, Mr. Reese Davies, was, who was also a member of Parliament in Indonesia, has frequently echoed my mind, always asked why, what is the context, do not accept the official narrative. Beware the victor's version. Wartime propaganda often morphs into peacetime textbooks. Learn to think critically, think outside the box, dig deeper. You will not find the truth by accepting the standard narrative parroted in the news media or on the screens or on the school textbooks i there. Another very good piece of advice was received after one of my early missions to Mozambique. After missions were fought back at a church in Transvaal, Randberg, actually, one of the people Never saw them before since. Said to me at the door, What you've got to say is very hard to believe. Next time, take pictures. And that was great advice. I had not bothered to take a camera, let alone any pictures, on my first mission of Ozobie. We've got some artwork for that. I was so focused on the work to be done, but what he said made sense. Why should people believe in what we were saying? How much more convincing to show them photographic proof? It's one thing to tell people that churches are being destroyed by communists or jihadists and bibles burned. It's another thing to document it with photographic evidence. And eyewitness testimonies, and if at all possible, dates and names and places. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel. If a good resource already exists, use it. From the first mission, God guided me to network and learn from those who had already been in the field to use those resources already available. So in the first days of Frontline Fellowship, World Missionary Press Gospel Booklets, WMPs, became a vital part of every outreach. WMP produces 50-page Gospel Booklets in over 300 languages. And Gospel Recordings, Bible Media, you can see some of those in the last cabinets there, provide us with many thousands of Gospel records, card talks, Gospel messages, tapes, flip charts, audio Bibles in more than 100 languages. We've used these to reach the illiterate in the marketplaces, beer halls, prisons, hospitals, military bases, refugee camps, on the streets, and hut to hut. Francis Grim, the founder of the first mission I had the privilege of serving, Hospital Christian Fellowship, he taught me to pray intensively in hours of prayer every morning, days of prayer, nights of prayer, at Hospital Christian Fellowship headquarters in Campson Park. He taught me to pray through Operation board, country by country, and strategic Focus. Well, Patrick Johnson, the author, the founder of Operation World, his intercessory handbooks guided our mission, in fact, started our mission really because by praying through Operation World, I learned that Mozambique was the least evangelized country in the southern hemisphere. There wasn't one Bible for a thousand people, no missionaries allowed in the church in Mozambique. 1980 edition of Operation World informed us that there were only two doctors in the country, medical doctors that the country had no missionaries, and nobody under 18 was allowed in churches, nobody under 18 could be baptized. Bibles were banned. Well, Patrick Johnson and I became correspondents, and I became a field researcher for future editions of Operation Board, and Patrick Johnson continues to be an honored member of the Board of Frontline Fellowship. And his prayer map, one of the best guides out there, all the books he's done, guiding us to the battle for the heart of Africa, Green represents where Muslims are the majority, blue where witchcraft is the majority, yellow where Christianity officially is the majority. Lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already ripe for harvest. Nothing is impossible, nothing is beyond the reach of prayer, except that which is beyond the will of God. No one is unreachable. The will of God will never lead you, but the grace of God cannot keep you. So these are our mission fields. From Angola through Zambia and Zimbabwe to Mozambique, the frontline states. Well, when people heard going to Mozambique, it's oh, prawns, LM, coconuts, bananas, palm trees, beaches, holidays. Well, I never saw that side of Mozambique. And uh, what I saw was something very different. Mozambique used to be a tourist attraction. Rhodesians and Selected so poured into Mozambique, which is part of the Portuguese Empire. In fact, it was a 500 year old empire and it was known as Portuguese East Africa. And Mozambique was a real tourist attraction. In fact, the city was very modern. Uh, The military there looked very professional, very neat, very efficient. Uh, It's kind of another world when you look back at what it was like in the 60s and 70s. And the Portuguese treated Mozambique as an overseas province. And uh, smart, efficient, capable. And there was a serious war going on, and everything from cavalry to jet fighters, helicopters. On the other side, you had the guerrillas, the terrorists, the freedom fighters, whichever you wanted to call them, but they planted landmines. This is what the city looked like, that's what used to be where the ugly Samora a statue is these days. Halana Hotel. I mean, again, people just think, this is a tourist attraction. Well, that's what they saw. I didn't see that. No picture of our early cross-border missions, but this is uh, artistic depictions of some of our early artistic frontline people as to how they saw our cross-border Mozambique. Well, I could show you they didn't have a nice building like that, nor with the glasses in the windows. But anyway, uh, on the way to Maputo on another mission later on, and Mo- Maputo was a city that did not have power failures. They occasionally had electricity. A lot of Communist Graffiti, this is the university, Eduardo Milani, Marxist University, and could tell what was the major. And, by the way, just to show you how change isn't necessarily progress, this is what Bayra looked like back in the evil days of colonialism, and that's what the same place looked like under liberation a few years later. Can you see the small trees there? Just look, you can see the same trees later. But there's a few things that have changed. Here's the Grand Hotel in Bara, not so grand a few years later. Liberation can do this for you. And who's responsible? Well, Samora Michelle. a Marxist who turned the country into a hellhole, and this is how a Mozambican depicted it. This, in fact, depicts what he did to the country very well. Concentration camps, massacres, broken infrastructure, this bridge was out, no signs. Developing world. I don't know what was developing except weeds and rust, uh, because the thousands of kilometers of road and railway just turned into nothing. The towns were socialized, the factories were nationalized, landmines became the national plant. Missionaries had to design new kinds of bicycles, tricycles actually, that were hand pedaled for people who'd lost both feet to landmines. We saw the ships, Soviet ships coming in, bringing weapons, offloading tanks, trucks, helicopter gunships and so on, going out, still heavy. What did they take out? Food. They were taking food out of Mozambique while people were starving in a green country, which used to export food. People starving. These two children, our team gave vitamin rich milk to, it was too late, they died within a week. When you see this sort of thing with skulls and bones broken up, Around a fire, you know, cannibalism is actually back. Churches, 8,000 churches confiscated, closed down, destroyed. Burning of villages. I documented the massacres in the Mozambique report, which later was republished as in the Killing Fields of Mozambique. This is read into the congressional record by Senator Jesse Holm, sent Senate Foreign Relations Committee, led to America stopping the aid to Mozambique. Norway government also translated it and broadcast it and it was written to the Parliament in the and they stopped the aid to Mozambique as a result of this. And as a result, I got a letter from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Department of Cults, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, on a letter, you come back to Mozambique, we'll kill you. Signed, on a letter, from Ministry of Justice. This is Zhao, one of our early field workers. He had been trained in Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow, basically a university for terrorists. And he was a Philema guerrilla before he was converted to Christ and became an evangelist. Zimbabwe soldiers in the Barak Corridor near Chemoya, helping to commit many of the atrocities. Some of the resistance fighters. Resistance fighters, Renamo, many of them without shoes, some of them without weapons. Even women fighting against Filimo. This man, Edwana Milani, was a Philemo officer and he was converted to Christ and he said... We've only swapped the Portuguese for the Russians. Colonialism with communism, and the Russians are worse. And so he joined the resistance and was fighting against Filimo, who he had once served. 12.7 anti-aircraft gun. Children in church, even though no children were allowed in church at that time. We're talking about 1982 here. People being sent off to the sugar cane plantations of Cuba. Conscripted. No choice. Indentured labour. Slavery. Converts coming to Christ in Zambezia province, witchcraft, witchcraft em- elements. The schools had no textbooks. They had no pens, papers, desks. All they had was chalkboard and chalk, and we took the chalk. You could go into average village, 60, 70% children, maybe 10% old men, and uh, 30% were the men. Men being conscripted into Renamo or Felima, or killed. Or Shipped off to the work in the sugar plantations. Well, uh, Anne put together this cartoon set to give a bit of an idea of what's in a field trip. Months of preparation, thousands of kilometres travel. of that's a motorbike back in the dust back there. Punctures, sleepless nights with friendly mosquitoes, many roadblocks, many roadblocks, scenic routes. A warm welcome from the locals. Interesting accommodation. By the way, at one point when I was captured in Zambia back in 1987, and uh, I was complaining about the disgusting conditions we were in, and somebody brought out this very newsletter and showed this. But your own newsletter says that you have interesting accommodation. You're all laughing about this. This is doing an interrogation. So we realized they actually had a lot of our literature on the stock there. A close-up view of wildlife. Evangelistic opportunities. This was inspired by my first Russian evangelism. I had a whole lot of Russian New Testaments. You can see some in the cabinet there, given by Slavic Gospel Association. I went down to Maputo Harbastad, handing out these New Testaments, and I'd hand out five, and I thought, gee, I'm doing well. This is really great. This is easier than I thought. And I was feeling a surge of excitement at this first attempt at Russian evangelism, and I heard a bellow from some big Russian seaman. and. Uh, this man barreled down top of me, picked me over his head and threw me into the harbour. And while I'm floundering in the oily, filthy, messy, pollution ridden, uh, litter strewn harbour trying to find some ladder that I could climb out, uh, I was blop, blop, blop. my New Testament's landing around me. So not a very effective first attempt at evangelising Russians. Uh, but that got <coughs> Anne, uh, so amused that she produced this, um, evangelistic opportunities. But the results make it all worthwhile. And then again, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. This is a real ongoing joke in the early frontline. Uh, it would be if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And uh, the picture here is a missionary in a cooking pot. And uh, yeah, so people back home made jokes about these sort of things. Other artwork made a bit later on, also by Anne. And more recently, Justin our typesetter did this cartoon to give an idea of celebrating 40 years in the front line. So artwork's often been part of our work because you can't always take a picture of some of the most interesting things that take place. One of the earliest leaflets uh, of our mission, Across the Borders. And we produced all kinds of tracks. This is our early artwork, being able to communicate what we were learning across the border. And our first board member was Father Arthur Lewis, the man who published Christian Terror, which we've republished, showing how the World Council Churches helped the very terrorists like Velima and Zadu and Zapu, who were murdering Christians and burning churches. Churches in the World Council Churches giving money to terrorists who were murdering Christians. And this is artwork we got done to depict what was going on in our country as well. Well, back in 1989, I and six medical missionaries from America were captured and taken by Russians in MI-8 helicopters to Makutu, we were all the way from Zambeza province in the north uh, through Tech province, uh, interrogated each different place, and ended up in Mashava Security Prison in Maputo, and that's a whole story. At one point, we were flown by Antonov-26 uh, Soviet aircraft through to Maputo, where we were thrown into the Mashava Security Prison. This picture was taken when George and I were finally released, and we flew to Nelskore Airport uh, to get out of the country quickly. That's the whole story. Well, Samora Michelle Declared war on God. He stood up in a stadium and he said, I'm going to prove to you God does not exist. This is in October 1986. So Maura Michel cursed God, blasphemed the name of Jesus, and said, I challenge you, God, I dare you, strike me dead. If you don't strike me dead in 60 seconds, everyone will know that you have no power. And he counts off seconds dramatically 60, 50, 40. In the end, time's up, God, God is dead. I'm alive. And the people had to clap. Well, they had to. mean, one party dictatorship. About 40 days later, his Soviet Antonov aircraft, which was specially provided by the Russians uh, as a presidential jet, crashed into the Eastern Transvaal. And they misread a whole lot of things and strewed across the landscape. Uh, these are some pictures taken of the crash. And today there is a shrine, that's termed a shrine built there, dedicated by none other than Nelson Mandela to the memory of Nelson, uh, of Samora Michelle. By the way, Nelson Mandela married Samora Michelle's widow. And her third marriage, his third marriage too. And these are some of the Soviet-made aircraft still there, which I saw walking around um, not too far from Back to the Bible Mission. And uh, it's in the Mkwamalanga. And here's the shrine. This is the main point of impact. And it was... they hit the ground at about 860 km now. It was... Uh, a controlled descent into gr- ground. They just literally plowed with the ground, they're misjudged. And these weird poles, they make an airy sound like ghostly noises the whole time, because as the wind blows from whatever direction, it gives this whole... <whistles> and it's one pole for each one of the people on board who was killed. So it's most of his Politburo. And it actually says here, in this shrine, and it made all the artwork out of debris from the aircraft, well, one of our people put out a poster with this aircraft on it, saying, uh, w- with a picture of Gorbachev, who was premier at that stage, was searching, would you buy a used aircraft from this man? And trying to give the impression that the Russians are giving inferior aircraft to Mozambique, which actually wasn't true because it was a very good aircraft. Nothing wrong with the aircraft. It was caused by, the accident was caused by vodka, and he, the black box makes it quite clear that the chaps were drunk. And we were talking about bars and all that, and uh, continuing in the background to hear navigating, ground warning, ground warning, and they're tapping the machine. No, there should be no ground you know, They thought they were at sea level, meanwhile they are flying into a mountain. So that's a whole another story about how Samora Michelle was judged. He challenged God. Foolish. God's patient. He gives us much more than 60 seconds to repent. But on board the plane was the documents of... A meeting between Samora Michelle, Kenneth Govinda and, and um, Mugabe, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, how to overthrow Malawi. And uh, we copied it, we got it translated from the Portuguese into English, and United Christian Action distributed it worldwide, and it helped to really save Malawi from the Marxist plans to overthrow what was then a Christian country. Well, and much more than that in the killing fields of Mozambique. But Joshua 23 verse 14 says, and you know all your hearts and all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one word of them has failed. And I think the evidence of that is what you're going to hear now tonight because Isaac has been living in Mozambique for 24 years and his family has been working there for more than two decades and work that we would never have thought possible. I I never dreamed that Mozambique could be a country where missionaries could be based, i worked in my lifetime, that churches could be built, Christian schools could be built, bars could be brought in freely. Uh, The answers to prayer are extraordinary because when I left Mozambique, it did not seem like it could ever be a tourist attraction or anything like that. We were praying for God to judge the wicked, to bring freedom, but I must say, even as we prayed it, we didn't quite believe it would happen. So, OG Isaac, looking forward to... Hearing your presentation on Mozambique tonight.
1: Thank you,
2: Uncle um, Peter. It's quite amazing to realize the difference in Mozambique from your time to now. Um, my parents are originally from Bloom, and we moved to Mozambique in November of 98, and it definitely is a very different country. To what Uncle Peter was describing even now 24 years later. It's very different as well So just to share briefly about the history of Mozambique again um, It was initially colonized by the Arabs who controlled most of what is today northern Mozambique and there is still a very strong Muslim influence in northern Mozambique um, but As Uncle Peter was saying it was discovered by the Portuguese and became a colony for, of theirs for almost 500 years. It's quite incredible The war for independence began in 1964 and went on until 1974, and Mozambique finally gained independence from Portugal in 1975, when the Portuguese government collapsed. Unfortunately, the government was handed over immediately to the communist dictators and party called Frelimo. Um, Soon after independence, all the Portuguese were given 24 hours to leave the country with no more than a suitcase of 20 kilograms. So most had to fled to South Africa and Portugal with absolutely penniless pretty much, Um, and soon after the Civil War broke out during which time Frontline visited Mozambique. It's quite incredible that um, in the 24 years that we've lived in Mozambique, we've only had, I've only met two people who spoke freely of their uh, experiences during the war. It is still such a traumatic event that people don't speak of it freely. It's very hush-hush. It's uh, looked upon today as if it never happened. of course, Samora Machel is still, he's the a, a Mozambican version of Nelson Mandela for you guys here in South Africa. Worshipped as a god almost, uh, absolute hero. But when you talk to people who actually lived through his time as dictator, you hear a very different story. A peace treaty was signed in Rome in 1992, ending the civil war. Our new president became um, Joaquin Chissano who was uh, uh, the former foreign minister to Mozambique and he was very open to uh, foreigners, um, he opened the country to missionaries and Christians and Mozambique went from being a very close country to a very open country with many opportunities both for business and for missionaries. It was in the early 90s that my parents came to know the Lord and um, in the mid-90s when the Lord called them to Mozambique and we moved to Mozambique in 1998. Uh, but I will share about that more later. <clears throat> Currently, Mozambique has a population of almost 33 million people. Um, our majority of population is still under the age of 18. 52% of the population is under age of 18. Although it's not so much due to war, it is actually due mostly to HIV AIDS. We have some of the highest infection rates in the world, and our province, where I live, has the highest rate within the country. Officially, one out of four people in our province is HIV positive. Um, but considering that they're not testing probably half, is at least double that, I think. Um, besides HIV-AIDS, uh, malaria is still a very prevalent and serious disease all over the country. Uh, tuberculosis, very, very common. Cholera, many other diseases including leprosy, is quite common throughout the nation. After all these years, Mozambique continues to be the seventh poorest country in the world, which is a step up, considering when we moved there in 98, it was the poorest country in the world. So we've, we've moved up at least seven places, which is nice. Um, currently, Mozambique is a republic in name only, as Mozambique is officially classified as an authoritarian regime, with Frelimo being in power since independence in 1997, I mean 75, and they've continued in power since then. Since independence, we've had elections, but everybody knows the elections have not been free or fair. The party controls the presidency, they control parliament, and they control the whole justice system. In our last elections, um, in I guess about three years ago, um, a quite well-known election observer was assassinated in broad daylight, actually not far from my home, in Shai Shai. He had been in a conference where they had been meeting, discussing the election, and as he walked out to his car, he was shot over 30 times. Uh, the assassins jumped in the car, rushed off and they had an accident crossing the Lepopo Bridge River. Uh, Two of them died, uh, three were caught, and they were all special uh, military police uh, with their official firearms, but they, of course, claimed that this was completely of their own volition. Nobody sent them. I mean, nobody would do that, right? (laughs) So, um, we have a lot of freedom compared to what it was before, but it's also quite a bit of a facade. You don't speak out against the government. You keep quiet, you keep your head down, and you do what needs to be done. Um, Yeah. So, considering, as Uncle Peter said, what the medical system was before, what the education system was before, we have come a long way. Um, There are a lot more doctors, a lot more doctors in training. Um, Unfortunately, the education system in Mozambique is horrendous. Um, if you think it's bad in South Africa, you have not seen the Mozambican education system. Uh, officially, 53% of the population is illiterate. I would argue it's quite a bit more than that. Um, but it's very, very common, even in the cities and towns, to find uh, kids in grade five, six, seven who can't read a single word or write a single letter. And um, our family has always been. Uh, has always seen this and been very interested in Christian education. That is one of the areas that we work in. So um, interestingly enough, the Frelimo and Marxists and communists completely failed in making Mozambique a Marxist atheist nation, which was their purpose. Uh, Mozambique is an extremely spiritual and religious nation and um, in my twenty-four years living there, I have not come across a single true atheist. Why people might even say, "I don't believe in God." What happened now?
0: Uh-huh. I just, I just, don't... oh, sorry. That's okay. okay.
2: There we go. Um, yeah, so. I've come across one person who first said he was an atheist, and you talk to him, it's like, "Oh, I just don't believe God's involved." But do you believe in God?
1: Yeah, of course, there's
2: God, and it's just uh, spirituality is such a reality to Mozambicans—not um, necessarily Christianity, but I mean, their ancestor worship, the demonic forces they deal with—it's part of their daily lives. So. Uh, It is interesting that our curriculum in Mozambique, in the schools, is still very communistic, very atheist, yet you have such a religious and spiritual people. Um, 26% of Mozambicans are Roman Catholic, which is, I think, still the most powerful church in Mozambique due to the Portuguese, who are, of course, Catholic. Uh, Next, we have the 18.3% Muslims, uh, which are in the... North, they make up the majority of the people, but in the center and south, they're our business class, middle class people. And then we have 15.1% Zionists, which is uh, Christianized witchcraft. We have the 14.7% Evangelical slash Pentecostal, excuse me, 1.6% Anglican and 4.7% Jewish, Hindu and Baha'i. The remaining 19% uh, do not specify specific religion, but again, almost everyone is quite religious. Now, amongst the 14.7 Evangelical and Pentecostal churches, um, it is sadly true today that there are not many Biblical churches, and I can't help but wonder if A lot of this lack of Biblical churches is not due to the destruction of Bibles in the wartime. Because even today, it's very common to find churches of 200-300 people, maybe 20 people have Bibles, if that much. And then even amongst the church, few people are literate, and the pastors have never studied uh, theology, they've never been taught how to study the Bible. So uh, many evangelical churches just pick and choose what they teach and what they believe. Um, in the one church that we were involved in, we had quite a few of the youth come to Christ and be saved and we were discipling them. And um, as they were being discipled and started living a Biblical Christian life, they started pointing out sin in the church, adultery and witchcraft and they started standing up doing it like, this is not right, this is not right, it's not Christian, it shouldn't be in the church. And the church board called a meeting with the youth leaders, and I was there, and, and the one church board member said, the Bible's a big book, you can't follow everything, so we just pick and choose what's useful for us, just leave the rest. So don't take the Bible so seriously. And, and sadly, that is a reality of many evangelical churches um, I will say that is, of course, not everyone, and we are so grateful to say that in the last, I would say, 10 years, there has been a lot of growth of reformed biblical churches in Mozambique, new ones being planted, uh, good biblical teaching being spread, training of pastors by different ministries. And uh, that is always such a joy to see, and we are grateful for that. So after the war, as I said, Joachim Chassano, our president, opened the doors completely to missionaries, it was very easy to go to Mozambique as a missionary um, for years. It was just missionaries were respected, they were looked up to, and um, they were welcomed because they knew we were coming to help a country destroyed by civil war. And with, over the years, things have changed a little bit. Our second president after the war, Armando Gebuza, um, I think he's the Mozambican version of Zuma, that he didn't really care about politics, he just wanted to line his pockets. Um, But our current president, uh, Philip Nussi, he is actually a Muslim. And uh, interestingly enough, he is the first president who was not uh, a political figure during the war, but he is also the most unfriendly to foreigners and Christians since the war has ended. Um, He is now nearing the end of his second term. And there are already discussions of him being allowed to run for a third term which is by law actually unconstitutional but of course in a authoritarian state he can do whatever he wants um, but just in the nine years that he's been in power we've really seen the change um, the our documentation for instance has almost quadrupled the cost it, no more than that it used to be uh, about four five thousand rand uh, for our residence permits and now it's about twenty five thousand rand for our residence permits per person. And that's not including your work permits and a whole lot of other things. So he's really made uh, the red tape, the paperwork, the cost made it extremely difficult uh, to a missionary to be a foreigner in Mozambique. Um, It's specifically targeted towards foreigners but even more so to religious workers and NGO workers. They've actually said they do not want to give any more visas or residence permits to religious workers. So it's much easier now going in as a business person as a tent maker and using your work or business then as an opportunity to be a missionary, which is uh, quite, kind of what our family is doing as well. So uh, it's interesting now we have the threat of Islamic terrorism in northern Mozambique and if you had told us 10 years ago we would have Islamists attacking the country, we would have laughed and said it's absolutely ridiculous. This, we only hear about this in the Middle East and Northern Africa, but most of the come on. I mean, I grew up with Muslims around me. Most of the, our neighbors on our street were Muslims, and they're such liberal. I mean, it's, so, it's, Islam is like a culture to them, not much of a religion. They don't even know what they believe, and they're extremely open, extremely kind, very friendly, and the thought of there being terrorism in the country just seems so foreign to us. Um, but in October 2017, there was the first Islamic attack in the far north of Mozambique in a town where civil police stations and buildings were attacked, people were decapitated, buildings burned, dozens of people killed, and it became, it was an absolute shock to the whole nation. Nobody knew where this group come from, why it started, and even to today, very little info is known about the terrorist group, um, but apparently it started in 2015 under a, a Kenyan cleric. And he realized in the far north, which previously had been Renamu, um, Frelimo had not invested much, so there is a lot of dissatisfied and uh, begruntled people in the north, and they were able to recruit among the young Muslims their um, soldiers for their cause. The majority are Mozambican, um, at least that's what they say, um, but we have people from Tanzania and Somalia part of this terrorist organization. ISIS officially adopted them in 2019 and they're now part of the African Caliphate. And it's, the attacks have been ongoing since 2017. Uh, for 2017, 18, and 19, it was relatively hardly ever reported on, uh, even though attacks were constantly happening in villages. People were being slaughtered, decapitated all the time. But it was just hush-hush, nobody spoke about it, there was, the media was not allowed to report on it, and the world didn't really care because, I mean, who cares about the Africans, right? Um, until there was an attack on a tourist town, um, several foreigners were killed, including uh, several British member French, South Africans, and it was also close to the gas, uh, the gas projects from Total, uh, which is the second largest gas field uh, in the world, actually. So uh, ISIS adopted them, and we believe, and they, the government believes, is funding them. A lot of the funding actually comes and is channeled through South Africa as well. And officially, there's about 4,000 people killed since the insurgency started, but it's likely much higher than that. Um, about a million people displaced. Um, I we have friends in central and northern Mozambique who have shared just how hundreds of thousands of people have just been fleeing the area, and in an already very poor country. In very poor provinces and they have nowhere to go. So, it, it is really quite a mess up there. Uh, Mozambique, after it hit international news, after the foreigners were killed, Mozambique received military troops within six months from the SADC, which is all the southern countries of Africa, including South Africa. Uh, South Africa, I believe, has over a thousand troops in Mozambique currently. Rwanda also sent a thousand soldiers and they were actually the most successful in repelling the terrorists. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, at least last we had heard, is that uh, Rwandans were leading the coordination of the fight mm-hmm. against uh, the terrorists in the north. And they've been fairly successful. They've taken back almost all the main camps that belong to the terrorists. But unfortunately, the terrorists have gone from having their main areas just spreading into the bush and attacking random villages and people um, just... Uh, because of the media blackout, you hardly hear anything on the news. But then from local Mozambicans, you hear on local Facebook pages, local people hear, oh, last week, three fishermen were decapitated. And, oh, seven uh, girls were abducted. Um, it's sadly quite scary because we don't know where this is going to end. Um, I mean, it was first confined to the very far north of Cabo Delgado province in the north which then spread to the rest of the province, which there have been actual incursions into the neighboring provinces. And our prime minister once let slip on uh, national TV, which it was very quickly erased, but people remember what he said, that he believes that there are probably uh, sleeper cells in almost every province within the country, which is quite likely. Even just uh, uh, a month ago, I I went to drop someone off at the airport in Maputo, and I was so surprised by how security had been heightened I mean before security was so ridiculous but now there's military checkpoints and there's barriers and it feels like you're in a war zone going to drop someone off at the airport and they inspect your vehicle and everything and it shows that they realize the threat of the terrorism spreading to the whole nation especially to the capital is very real and sadly Mozambique is not prepared for this um, they are trying to really keep it under wraps, so very few people speak about it, very little is known about it. Um, we had one uh, specific case, which was the uh, uncle of one of our church members who was in the north in one of the attacks. He, uh, the attacked the town they were in, he and his co-workers went to hide in a house, a safe house and they were hiding in it for three days. The attack was ongoing after three days. Some of the workers, there were about 20 of them in the little room, just had a small bag of uh, dry raw rice that they were nibbling on over these days. Uh, Half of them decided they were going to try and make a break for it. They opened the door, ran out towards the bushes. Some of the terrorists saw them, shot, and I believe killed most of them. Some made it into the bushes, but unfortunately they revealed the location of the about 12 who remained behind. And the terrorists came, blew the door open, came in and uh, tortured and tied up uh, these men inside there for approximately four or five hours. Um, when I met this man, his arms still had the scars that looked like they had cut his arms with knives, but it's just the ropes, how they tied his elbows behind his back. And it was uh, just so sad as he told that... They they have absolutely no mercy. He says there's no compassion, no humanity almost left in them. They were just um, so ruthless and looked at at them as if they weren't even human. He said there was a, a boy, he said maybe 11, 12 years old. And he said in his mind, he thought maybe this child will have compassion on me. And he said he was probably the most cruel out of all of them. And it has become public knowledge that they are recruiting a lot of child soldiers. And they would celebrate seven, eight-year-old boys coming back from their first kill after murdering uh, someone. And uh, these Muslims then proceeded to shoot and decapitate everyone in the room, including this young man who I met. They shot him, thinking they shot him through his heart, but they forgot the heart is on the left side of the chest, and they shot him on the right side of the chest. And he collapsed, they left him for dead, and he woke up maybe ten minutes later realized he was alive everyone else was dead and he managed to get up and run out where he was found by some of his co-workers in the bush and miraculously a helicopter flew over them in less than 15 minutes and saw him and rescued him and take him to a hospital where he received a life-saving care and um, he told me this story himself so and it's unfortunately not an uncommon story in the north um, this the stories that people tell is truly tragic So, there's great need in the north. Unfortunately, it is quite close to people. Uh, They don't want foreigners going up there. They're not very open to people working in the area. Um, But it is a big need. So, yeah, that's a little bit about Mozambique. Our family does not live in the far north, so we are not directly affected uh, by the terrorism. We are in the far south. Um, This is me and my family, um, my mom and dad. On the side, my brother in the middle, and me and my sister. So I am the youngest of us three kids. Uh, there's a nine year difference between me and my sister, and eight years between me and my brother. Uh, my parents were saved in 1991, I believe. And in, we lived in Bloemfontein. They were successful business people. We had a house, we had two businesses there, but in 1994-95 uh, my parents felt the Lord calling them to the mission field and as I started praying about where the Lord wanted them to go um, the Lord just brought Mozambique to them over and over and they soon knew that the Lord was calling them to the nation of Mozambique which um, is was a country in complete shambles after a horrific 15-year civil war. So at the time um, Bloom, Afrikaans, churches, Sadly did not have a big heart for missions at the time and the church we were in was a lovely church and Very good church But when my parents said they felt the Lord was calling them to go to Mozambique They said that's wonderful. We'll pray for you. Good luck and That was it But my parents decided that they would not let the sending of a church hold them back and my parents sold their businesses sold our home and left everything and moved our family to Mozambique. Um, our extended family, who are not Christians, uh, thought we were absolutely insane. I mean, this is just a few years after apartheid in the Free State. Uh, this white family moving to a black country was horrendous, I think, <laughs> in their eyes. Um, but my parents knew the Lord had called them and they left everything to take. Them. I was Uh, Just uh, three years old when we left Bloom, we stayed in Nalspread area for two years before moving into Mozambique in November of 1998 and I was five years old at the time. So my parents uh, have always believed after reading uh, George Mueller's autobiography that they wanted to be a faith-based mission and we have lived through Mozambique through all these years uh, trusting in the Lord and we have seen the Lord's Provision for our mission, for our family. I can't tell you how many people have told us we need to go back to Africa. You don't. You shouldn't be here. You were sent here. We don't know what you're doing here. You guys aren't going to make it here. And most of those people who said it are not in Mozambique anymore. I, actually, I don't think any of them are. And yet, we are still there. And it's not anything because of who we are or what we have done. It is truly just the Lord keeping us. And growing up, I can't tell you what faith building experience it was Um, Sometimes as a family not even knowing where our next meal would come from and yet the Lord would always provide and I never our family never went hungry and the Lord kept us there and it's yeah, truly the Lord's faithfulness was amazing. Um, I absolutely love my parents. Um, I've come to respect them even more as I grew older realizing what they left coming to Mozambique and giving up and sacrificing everything to be there. Um, They are now, this year, next month, actually celebrating uh, 40 years of marriage. And they are still about as much in love now as they were as newly married couples. I I think uh, Daniela, who visited, commented on how just how sweet and affectionate they are still until this day, cuddling, holding hands, sitting together. Absolutely precious couple who really love the Lord and are such an example to us. Um, Very close to both my parents, uh, especially close to my mom. And. my mom actually has had very severe health problems throughout most of her life. She has had severe osteoporosis since her late teens and has broken her back, has had a major back surgery, broken several bones, lives in chronic pain since she was in her late 20s. She's had chronic pain and it's become part of her. her she actually lives with a hairline fracture in her neck. And the a neurologist specialist was just like, ah, It's too dangerous to do the surgery. If you can live with the pain, then just live with it. And you wouldn't imagine it if you met my mom. I mean, she's going on and busy in the house, and we sometimes uh, get very upset when we get home after she's alone, and she's up there on the ladder, busy hanging the curtains. Like, Mom, get off the ladder. You can't be up there. She's like, oh, but you guys can't get the curtains right the way I want them. (laughs) I think that's probably what every mom says. but, uh, yeah, my mom is a very precious woman uh, who truly loves the Lord. And she is the housewife who keeps all of us together and fed and alive. And she, um, you yeah, know, she's the glue of the family and the prayer warrior that prays for our whole family and our mission. i we're truly grateful for it. Um, I don't forget going back now just for a second. My dad, um, he's the quiet leader in our family, filled with much wisdom. Um, yeah, he. He truly is such an example to us of who a godly man and husband and leader should be, and we're truly grateful for him. Then the oldest is my sister Annika. Um, She, uh, very soon after finishing school, started working in children's ministry. She opened a, a Christian preschool in our just outside our home actually and has been working with children's ministry over the years since then she right now is not currently with our mission but is the head of the english department at another christian school a few hours away from us she has been there for the past few years and she absolutely loves the work that she does uh, my brother john he is um, yeah we are very opposite in personalities. We used to be arch enemies before Christ saved us both. But after the Lord saved us, it's amazing how relationships can not only be healed but built. And I'm grateful for my older brother. And he uh, works with my dad in construction, which is the company that supports our mission. I will speak more on that later. But he also works in children's ministry and Sunday school classes with the kids. Uh, which is quite interesting because he always said he didn't want to have anything to do with kids. And now he's teaching Sunday school class every week to the kids, <laughs> well, often over a hundred children, so well done to him. <laughs> so yeah, here is me and my parents. Uh, we are the four family members at our mission in Shai Shai. Uh, Shai Shai is about four hours north of uh, Maputo. It's a growing small city with a population of approximately 127,500 people. It is the capital of Gaza province. It is a city that in 2000 was mostly underwater due to severe flooding. The whole city was destroyed. Uh, I was a small child during the time. Our neighborhood, which is by the beach, was thankfully highly elevated. So we weren't affected directly except for being almost out on the streets because we were kicked out of our home uh, as we were renting at the time. But uh, by the Lord's grace, we were able to find another home and um, yeah anyway it's the the city was destroyed most of the province was destroyed by the 2000 floods and it's um, it's been rebuilding since then uh, shai, shai is the business and commercial center for our province um, it's not quite as touristy as the provinces above and below us but it does have stunning beaches as you will see later um, Shy Shai Shai and Shai, Shai, the largest employer is I think the government. Um, there is a government department on every street. I mean, I don't know how many government departments there is. It's just, uh, just to give you an idea of how it is, when you go to certify a document, you walk into the office and you hand your document to be certified. The first person takes it, looks it over, hands it to the next person. He first, the first person's job is to check that you have a copy of the original, then he passes it to the next person, who then fills in a form, who then passes it to the next person, who fills in another form, who passes it to the next person and then registers in a book, and then passes it to the next person who stamps it, and another person who watermarks it, and then another person who you pay for the certification.
1: So that's just an idea
2: of how government is run and works in Mozambique. And that's why it's probably the largest employer in the country <laughs> and in our city for sure. Uh, most of the people who don't work for the government uh, live of small businesses, whether that is just street vendors. Um, yeah, I-, I will say Mozambicans are extremely hard-working people, very innovative. They will make a plan. And uh, farming is still a very big part of Mozambique. Not big farms, but substance farming. And I I think almost every single family in our small city has a garden out there somewhere where they go and send someone to work and um, work this ground and work the farming. Our town is also, and our province, not necessarily our town, but our province is quite well known for its witch doctors. Uh, Witch doctors Mm -hmm. from other provinces come to ours to be trained. Um, It's very common even in our um, city, Shai Shai, to have whole street, like everyone on the street is witch doctors living there and you'll hear the drums. And We see them commonly walking around. We know what dresses and clothes they wear. When you come as a foreigner and you buy the traditional clothes, you sometimes have to be a bit careful that you don't accidentally buy witchcraft uh, <laughs> clothes. We once made the mistake, my mom found this lovely hand-woven basket and the guy was like, oh yeah, it's very traditional, very traditional. My mom bought it, oh what a lovely basket and we had it in our living room for two years. Nobody said anything until one Mozambican imposter was like, do you know what that basket is? And I was like, no, I don't know, it's just, oh, oh yeah, that's the basket that the witch doctors used to put the demons in and that's uh, for safekeeping. Oh, that's lovely, I guess we'll burn it now. (laughs) So, sometimes you have to be careful. Uh, This is our home. We uh, live in a tropical climate. It's... Very humid, uh, quite rainy and very hot. Uh, Just today, actually, we were in the middle of a heat wave, I saw the temperature was, I think, 35 to 41, um, which is really quite warm for August, um, getting us prepared for the lovely summer coming Mm. up, I suppose. Mm. And I love gardening, so our house always looks a bit like a jungle. It was completely bare when we moved into this home in 2000. This is our backyard view, Um, yeah, suffering for Christ in Mozambique, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, but yes, uh, as I said, not as well known for tourism, but still has stunning beaches and um, yeah, it truly has been a privilege to grow up in such beauty and you really do not get used to it. yeah, all of this is from our backyard, coconut trees that we planted when we moved in there. Uh, this is the view literally from my bed, I'm sitting here on my bed looking out over the ocean. Uh, growing up, I was homeschooled and um, my desk was right at my window and <coughs> I was always the first one to see the whales during whale season and yeah, it just shows you how concentrated I was in my schoolwork, sitting there daydreaming over the ocean. Uh, we love our backyard, and it's just a blessing. Blessing, and all the challenges that we face in Mozambique with all the bureaucracy, corruption, and just so many challenges that you face. It is so nice to have an escape. Our family loves spending time in the backyard. Often, find my dad brying some meat, and uh, yeah, having a nice grill outside. And you may wonder why do we have a pool when the ocean is right there? <laughs> well, a few reasons. Uh, one is our dogs like to cool off as well, mm-hmm. and We live on the top of a hill and it's so hot that if you go down and swim, by the time you get up back to the house, you're hot and dry again and you want to swim. And not to mention, if you have water cut-offs, which thankfully over the last 10 years has improved a lot, it is very nice to have a swimming pool because my mom and I both love our garden enough that we will carry buckets to water the garden instead of letting it die in the drought. Our family is big animal lovers. yeah we recently had a discussion on the WhatsApp group which we have with a few of the young people here in Cape Town I mentioned another dog we rescued and Alpha made a list of all the animals we had and her speculations so she I think she said oh, we'll have like a, yes. uh, she she said like in a 10 uh, in a years time you'll be having like 200 animals and uh, she might not be too far off mm-hmm. uh, yeah, some of our dogs, Mozambican Rescue, Bala, Dobia Doberman, our Burbul, and our two small dogs. Uh, one on the left is my mom's baby. He's our oldest, 13 years old, Mickey. Uh, this is Joey. He is my sidekick. And he, this, my brother, since I've been in Cape Town now almost three weeks, my brother says he goes every night into my room to check for me. And this is uh, two nights ago, sitting on my bed, waiting for me to come home. So, yeah, I do miss my babies. Um, we do love taking our dogs for walks. It is uh, always so nice after a long day at the school or at the church and coming home and taking them out for a relaxing walk on the beach for exercise for them and us. And my parents do it as well in the mornings normally. Our dogs, the big ones, are supposed to be outside dogs, but I mean, how can you say no to that face in the rainy weather? <laughs> so, they, I think they do end up more inside than outside. Uh, we also have a parrot, African Grey, I received it for my birthday when I was 13 years old. Um, she destroyed more of my school books than I cared to count. and Other books as well, which is always a nice excuse. You know, the dog ate up my homework, I just said the parrot chewed up my book. Uh, we've rescued tortoises because unfortunately they eat tortoises the most These are two recent babies that uh, we were given. Um, I think we have seven, maybe eight tortoises. I've kind of lost count. They live in our garden. And at our school, we have started rescuing dogs as well. This little puppy, uh, her name is uh, Keeler. Um, she arrived at our school all mangy and full of fleas and half dead practically. Nobody thought she would survive, but she pulled through. Uh, she is extremely traumatized and terrified, hides in her dog kennel, at least she did for most of the few months of her life. And sarcastically, I decided to name her Killer. And then this is a cat that we got as well, who hides out all day, only comes out at night when anyone is there, and her name is Brave. Then we have this, okay, she looks kind of cute in this picture, but in truth is she's hideous, um, but a very sweet kitty, and we've named her Flower. Uh, two recent rescues that in my dad's construction site that we found, um, yeah, mom abandoned them. one died, we rescued these two. And just a week before I came here, our local vet called us and said, Isak, I have this woman who wants to uh, poison her dog with rat poison um, because apparently it's a young dog and it's chewing everything up and she can't take it. So she told me to come pick the dog up or she's killing it. And the vet can't accommodate the dog. She's like, Isaac, can you take it? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and So we went to pick up this dog. She tried to bite us at first, but... Within 20 minutes, she had accepted me as her owner, and she um, is the sweetest thing ever, so loyal. And the next day after I'd rescued, when I arrived at the school, she just ran up to me, grabbed me around the legs, and just hugged me and held me like this. I mean, Mm -hmm. can't believe the loyalty of a dog. Such a sweet thing. Um, So, yeah, that's a little bit about our family. We are a bit animal crazy, sorry. Um, But onto our actual work of what we do in Mozambique. Um, I just want to share a bit briefly about that. So, uh, children's ministry has been the main focus of our ministry since coming to Mozambique. When my parents, parents first came, they had no training. Um, they didn't really know what they were doing. They, my dad a lot of one-on-one evangelizing. They didn't speak the language, which is Portuguese. Uh, my dad spoke Fanagulo, which is speaking in the mines, and many people in Gaza province worked in the mines as well. So he it was actually a very useful tool for him to speak Fanagulo in Mozambique. And he learned more Shangaan and learned more Portuguese and mixed it all together. So he pretty much speaks his own language that the majority of the people understand. <laughs> um, but throughout the years, children had always been a big part, excuse me, of our ministry and focus. And... Um, many of the children that we started reaching out to, excuse me, became adults and led to what we are now busy planting as a church. Um, My brother now runs the children's ministry, uh, pretty much. Uh, We also do some Sunday school teacher's trainings. Every now and then we are given the opportunity to different churches. And a lot of these young people in this picture used to be small kids when we started off. Um, It was over, the BBC 98 until 2012. So it was about 14 years that we were in Mozambique before we had our first convert. Um, So, it was a long time, a lot of work, a lot of praying before the Lord saved the first person, but we are so blessed and encouraged by the group of believers that the Lord has raised up, who were once children, who have now become young men and women of God, who truly love the Lord and are serving Him, and we have the opportunity to serve them, and disciple them, and work with them, and walk with them. Um, Comunidad de Esperanza, Community of Hope, is what we're called. Um, we are not officially a church yet, but we are busy forming it. It was Children's Bible Club to Bible study to now becoming an actual church. Mm-hmm. And we praise the Lord for what He is doing in these young people's lives. Uh, part of that ministry includes a uh, book club. Um, they love reading. Uh, we are very blessed by a ministry out of Brazil called Fial. Uh, who have translated uh, amazing literature uh, really good biblical books and um, and we have bought a lot and have a nice mass mm-hmm. library and our people lend it and read it we have a discipleship program women's bible studies men's bible studies leadership training and um, yeah it's just such a blessing to spend time with these young people very young most of them um here are some of the guys that got bibles uh, it's because such a lack of bibles we always need to give us but we make them earn it so uh, first time you Uh, get a Bible, you have to memorize the names of all the books of the Bible. So when you're preaching and you say the name, they actually know where to look. And then afterwards, we have large sections of Scripture that they have to memorize before they can um, receive a Bible. That way they value it more. We often have events. We go out to the beach. uh, We partner with different ministries uh, to do leadership trainings and theology courses with our leaders. Uh, This is uh, Francisco. He's a Brazilian uh, missionary in Maputo with a very good biblical reformed church. Uh, He often partners together with us in training as well. Very dear friend of ours. We also um, host uh, Palavra da Vida camps, which is Word of Life Ministries. They work with Mozambique based out of Brazil and they do a fantastic fantastic work um, doing camps similar to what Frontline does with the uh, BWS, the Biblical Worldview Summits. uh, Very similar to that, about a week long. And uh, we had one last December uh, of about 70 participants. It was truly a blessing. Um, We really enjoyed it. And here is our flyer for this year. Our school is hosting it. Uh, We're going to do two camps actually this year, back to back. And um, yeah, looking forward to it. But December is going to be very busy. Uh, we also uh, usually partake with Fiel, as I mentioned. Fiel Ministries they host conferences every year uh, in Maputo and in the far north. And this was this year's Fiel conference in Maputo after a uh, three-year hiatus due to COVID. So it's really great to get together. So we always take a group with us. This is the group that I took to the conference, and it was just such a blessing to be part of it. Um, besides the church side of things, we have the school, uh, Escola Esperança, School of Hope. This has been a dream of my parents, that the Lord laid on their heart to start a Christian, Biblical, English school in Mozambique um, over the last few years, and the Lord slowly but surely brought it into reality. Um, We didn't really have outside funding, it was mostly through my dad's own construction work, some funding from a few private donors that led to the school being built to this far. Uh, We've completed phase one, which is our admin block and our preschool. Uh, This is the road to the school. You can say we're smack dab in the the, uh, edge of town, neighborhood. Uh, The road gets a bit swashed away sometimes when it rains. to run up and try to fill up the holes before the uh, school buses arrive in the mornings. Um, Yeah, but it's been so exciting to to see the school grow and come to where it is today. Um, I am the one personally running the school. Um, I work on the church side and on the Um, on the school side of things and we were really blessed that earlier this year as soon after we opened we had uh, Daniela and Aliska come and paint some murals for our preschool for our classrooms they did such a fantastic job Um, yeah we kept them very busy indeed Um, you can see in the background there the mural now finished Um, they did one ocean themed one the kids absolutely loved it Uh, jungle themed one which was a lot of work, but they did it so splendidly. And uh, the last one, which is just such a fun, colorful one. Mm. And our kids, um, because this is a paying school, uh, we have a couple scholarship kids in it, but mostly most of our kids come from upper-class Mozambicans. Um, about one-third of our students are Muslims, actually. And because we're the only private English school in uh, Shai Shai, uh, parents don't care. They just want their kids to have, receive a good education. So it's been an amazing opportunity to share the gospel, not only with the kids, but with their family as well. Um, I remember in the one parents' meeting, I, had, I spoke about the depravity of man. And I was like, yeah, well, working with your kids, you just have to be one day with your angels. And then we realize they're all very depraved. So yeah, we're all sinners and we need Christ. And the parents just laugh because they know the kids. They know they're a bunch of little sinners. <laughs> 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 um, but we truly love these children. And uh, because they're upper-class most and beacons, often both parents work and the kids will only be at home with a maid who does not educate, love, or discipline the kids at all. So when they arrived at our school, they were... Yo, I don't think there's an appropriate word to say what they were when they arrived. Yeah, They were just quite a handful. Let's just leave it at that. and. We were almost dead the first two weeks every day <laughs> but uh, we're grateful to have had such an input in their lives teaching them loving them and showing them love discipline and care in their lives and just how they've developed and grown over the, we open so we open in february the preschool and just how it's changed since then that children has been truly amazing and um, yeah the kids have such fun the purpose of this school is uh, twofold. We believe first of all that not just the poor people need Christ, wealthier people do as well which is why we want to reach the wealthier class of Mozambicans through a high quality um, private school but we also believe and our purpose is for this school then to fund our ad- other education projects where we work with local churches and uh, teach reading and writing to older kids in higher grades as well and it's all of course free. So, um, yeah, this is one of our special needs boys. Uh, We realized he was autistic and had him officially diagnosed as well. Such a sweet boy. He went from not ever making eye contact, not wanting to be touched, just always sitting there ordering things. Now he's actually participating in activities, makes eye contact and has even started to speak. Um, So we're always so pleased and grateful to see the lives of these individual kids changing and growing. Uh, We've also been blessed by different people coming and helping, Um, besides Dani and Aliska, we also had these two special ladies, the one on the uh, left is Dr. Julia, an Italian doctor, an old family friend, a medical doctor who came and uh, inspected our premises, helped our menu, and yeah, she is really, uh, she's not a Christian, but she loves people, and she's a very spunky person, Italians, I tell you, they keep you on your toes, she tells you straight as it is, This kitchen is filthy, you should be doing this and this and this and yeah she gave very strict uh, feedback but very helpful feedback. And on the uh, the right we have uh, Dr. Magali, a Brazilian lady who specializes in early childhood development who came and did evaluation and training with our staff as well. Speaking of our staff, this is our school staff, Um, I think we are currently at 14 or 15. Um, teachers, uh, cleaners, assistants, admin, uh, security. Uh, This was on Workers' Day that we took a group photo and uh, yeah, we are now on, most of these young people at least, most of our teachers were children who grew up in our ministry, were saved and we have been blessed to have them now work with us as well. So it's really great to work with people you know and it's such a great opportunity to disciple them and work with them we now started our next building, uh, which is going to be the largest building of our school. Um, It will include three large classrooms, a kitchen, um, office and bathrooms, and a hall that will seat over 300 people on top, on the second floor. Um, This will be used uh, for church purposes, ministry purposes, and for the... temporarily as our primary school while the primary school is being built. Um, Our our property is 100 by 50 uh, meters. half a hectare and uh, yeah, as you can see construction is ongoing bit by bit um yeah we're really blessed by the Lord's provision that we've been able to come this far it's truly only by his grace other ministry areas of ministry and work that we have is uh, we provide scholarships for a lot of the young people um they were saved our ministry they we send them to universities to colleges and then they usually come back with a commitment to work two or three years for us uh, we provide food baskets for needy families, and um, since I'm in Christian education and our school is an ACE school, I partner with ACE to promote the ACE curriculum within Mozambique and I assist homeschooling families using the curriculum in the country. So, supporting our ministry, as I said, we're a faith-based mission without a uh, sending church, just a few private donors who have helped us throughout the years we have a construction company uh, that my dad and my brother run um, that provides for most of the mission and what we've been able to build and the lord has just been so good during covid over 80 percent of construction companies closed down in mozambique uh, due to the economy crashing but amazingly during those years was the time that my dad had some of the largest jobs and works and we received the largest income that time that's the years that we were able to build up our school and yeah, the Lord's provision has uh, been quite amazing. You can see here is a school my dad is building for another uh, church actually in our area. Uh, there the building is finished. And um, yeah, here is another school building that my dad built also for someone else. So yeah, Emmanuel Um my dad employs over 35 people, I believe. And um, many of them are young Christians from our ministry as well. And yeah, it's it's truly in a country where there's such um, low employment and so many people struggling. It's really such a blessing to be able to provide good employment to people that they can work honestly and provide for their families. Yeah, so that's a little bit about um, our family. I'm sorry, I was quite ill <coughs> this week, so I didn't have a lot of time to prepare. Um, But I just wanted to share briefly about what we do in Mozambique. Um, My contact info is here, email address and phone number and our school's Facebook page. Um, You're welcome to look it up or contact if you ever have any more questions. Um, Speaking of that, uh, I don't know if there are any comments or questions about our ministry about Mozambique. I'd be happy to answer. Um, Sort of the names of your camps and the events So like uh, palabra da Vida is Word of Life as uh, the camps. Uh, the conference mm-hmm. that we help and participate in, FIEL conference, is Faithful. Um, and then our school name, Esperanza, and our church name Esperanza means Hope. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the name of our ministry is Hope. It's, it's always always connected for that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just, I just want to say, um,
1: pictures don't do justice, um, the school is so beautiful mm. and just all the fruit
0: trees and mm. all the details and the is just so well done. it's amazing.
1: Mm.
2: Thank you Dan.
0: Mm. Do you have Christian media, Christian radio stations you can tune into, things like
2: that? Uh, we do not have Christian radio stations. Um, Fiel actually is one of the ministries and Palavra da Vida are two of the ministries that have been working on social media providing uh, good videos, and locally made materials as well that's going out on social media quite a bit now. Um, but yeah, we resources are quite difficult to find in Portuguese and very expensive. Uh, like we have um, the, um, the Bible League and a couple of different organizations that do provide literature and resources, but it's out of the price range of most Mozambicans. Uh, so that's why we often have to have uh, funds that buys it, and then you have ways of them earning it, like the Bibles, such as what you do. Are you saying there's the no
0: Christian radio station Shasha or in Mozambique? Uh,
2: not in Shasha. I, d- I can't speak for the rest of Mozambique. I'm sure there are in but, some areas. Are you able to tune into Christian
0: no. radio no, station?
2: No, it's not. None? none in our area. No.
1: Yeah. Mm. Mm. Wow. Uh, you yes. mentioned the president doesn't like Christians and foreigners. Yes. He's but is there any reason do you think that the Muslims, I mean, why would he be against secular people or against, why is there a particular, I mean, it, it's kind of strange to me that they, that's who they target because mm. they, essentially they are no threat to Muslims, ever, physically. Yeah. You know, Christians have really been known for secularism, but they, they don't, so they tolerate all those other things, witchcraft or whatever, it's just very strange to me, mm-hmm. and that's that's the thing. Yes, yeah. and, and I noticed that is it. Do you think it's a power struggle that they feel that um, they're gonna lose power because they mm. when not really think the reason? For
2: yeah, that? I mean, I think on the spiritual side of things. Uh, Christianity will always be targeted by non-Christians uh, because the world is always against Christ. as uh, the enemy. But uh, I think from a political standpoint, I do think it is a bit of a power struggle because they do know uh, Christians actually do the most good in the country. And the more good they do, the more the influence grows within the country. And it does become a threat to them because they are such a corrupt Governments and Christianity is pointing out against corruption standing up against what's wrong and they do want to limit that influence yeah. for sure um, Our minister of religion. I'm not sure if it's still the same person, but last I heard was a Muslim woman as well and um, They wanted uh, last year. Actually, they wanted to uh, ban Christian schools that so they said you could only have a class teaching Christianity in a secular school but when they brought it to Parliament, one of the uh, Christian parliamentarians and said, wait a minute, if you do that, then the Muslim schools also cannot teach Islam in their schools. They can only teach it in a class. And yeah, the bill was dropped very quickly after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, we really can feel the, the rope tightening against us uh, in regards to religious liberty. It went from being very restricted to it was actually classified as one of the most religious free countries in the world and now we are feeling a bit of the ropes tightening around us again, Um, nothing like before during the war, but we can feel the difference from when we arrived there to where we are now, yeah. So why was your mom's to have a English school in Mozambique? So, um, Mozambicans, uh, I mean, English is new international language and Mozambicans want their kids to learn English. Um, That is the main drawing point for most private schools in Mm. Mozambique. So, like, for instance, in Maputo, the capital, there are dozens of international schools teaching English, all competing with each other, all of them almost full. So, in Shai Shai, there's nothing like that. There is a Catholic uh, Portuguese school, um, there is another, I think, private Portuguese school as well, but no English school. So, having opened uh, English school, it's, we are the only people there, we have the Monopoly, so to say. Uh, so, we attract everyone from all sides. So, it's, it's really, a, it's a, opened a door for us that uh, otherwise wouldn't have if it was Portuguese. So, yeah. people want to learn, want their kids in English? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. So, we do teach Portuguese, but as a second language. Uh, the primary language is English, then, and we do teach Mozambican history, geography, and all of that, which we are, of course, required to by the government. Yeah. But
0: your curriculum is ACE?
2: Our curriculum is ACE. ACE has developed curriculum specifically for Mozambique and some of the subjects and bases as well.
0: And do you get supplies from Durban or from overseas?
2: No, we get our supplies from Durban. So we're part of the AEE Association. Um, they come and visit us every two years, usually in Mozambique. And yeah, I mean, we've had such a great relationship with uh, the different people from ACE. I mean, I did my uh, grade 12 exams with uh, one of who is now the curriculum developers at AEE, and uh, yeah, we're close friends with many of the people there. Do you have any idea
0: how many other ACE schools are might be working? Yeah, so currently there
2: are uh, full ACE schools. I believe there are four. Um, Some are partial users, meaning that they use the most curriculum, but they also supplement it with some ACE materials, and they use the school system of ACE because ACE is much more than just uh, the curriculum that actually provide a system of how to run your school, uh, which is amazing because it's very character-based and very Christ-focused. Yeah. I
1: know in South Africa, it doesn't count anymore as a sort
2: of health human certificate. Hmm. So, do the
1: Mozambique still
2: use it? Can you still go into universities with it? Yeah. So we usually uh, we prefer to use the GED uh, graduation path as well, even with ACE. Yeah. Uh, Even for Mozambique, for Mozambique, they just hear International Diploma and they're happy. So. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. That is respectable.
2: Yes. Yeah. But they have had their challenges with having the. Uh, diploma recognized by some universities, but they've made it quite simple and easy, they've and made it very easy to graduate through the GED uh, or different ways, so yeah, they've really facilitated the way for graduation, mm. and they help you along the whole process. Yeah. Mm. Now, there is a Bible
0: Society in
2: Maputo, is there an office in Shasha? There is an office in Shaisal, yes, it's a small office. Um, Like I said, it's still out of the price range out of most Mozambicans, but um, it is available there, yes. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Unfortunately, I think because of such a lack of books in their culture as well, Mozambicans don't generally take very good care of books as well. Um, So even if they get Bibles, they don't always last long, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why I prefer not to just give Bibles away for free, which is why we do the whole Bible memorization verses and different challenges they have to do to receive the Bibles. Uh, because they actually value it more and end up taking better care of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is it legal to do open air evangelism? Can you just do open air preaching, literature distribution, or put up a full?
2: So one on one evangelism, literature distribution, no problem. Uh, you might get in trouble with open air preaching um it's very it's very depends on the day and depends on the police who's on duty Um, so in Maputo the capital it would be a lot more challenging there's a lot more restrictions and but the local governments are generally very friendly and very open to christians and missionaries like even speaking from a documentation perspective uh, when we were renewing our residence permits as missionaries the local provincial government were extremely kind and helpful the religious department, immigration department, and then you go to Maputo and they just make your life a living nightmare. So we find that even in outreaches and stuff as well, often your local people will be very helpful, very kind and supportive in your work. Um, But if they have like visitors from the capital or something, something, or you just get the wrong police officer, you might get in trouble. But generally evangelizing one-on-one, literature distribution, you can go ahead and no one will bother you. People are very open to it, actually, and most people, if you hand them a piece of literature, they will take it and read it immediately because literature is so rare, so they find it very interesting. Yeah.
0: So, if a missionary comes from Brazil, another one comes from Portugal, who's Portuguese is closest to the Mozambique? Would (laughs) they have a problem understanding them, or would they, I mean, how
2: close or different are they? First of all, Mozambique and Angola both um, speak a very simplified form of Portuguese. They call it African Portuguese. So, I mean, Portuguese, just to give an idea, the verbs have over 70 tenses. Yeah. Um, we don't use all 70 tenses. <laughs> um, so, uh, we speak a rather simplified version. The Brazilians uh, have a very sing song way and they have so much slang in their Portuguese in the beginning, I could hardly understand them, even though I spoke fluent Portuguese. Uh, the Portugal Portuguese, they have a heavy accent, but it is actually closer to the Mozambican mm-hmm. Portuguese. So yes, we generally do, I would say before, we understood um, Portugal Portuguese more, but nowadays, due to television from Brazil, most Mozambicans have gotten used to the Brazilian accent and understand it quite well. We've got all the Soap operas and telenovelas trash from Brazil and our TVs in Mozambique. So yeah, we, we know the Brazilian accent quite well. And it is actually a blessing. We have many of the good biblical missionaries and churches uh, being planted and growing throughout Mozambique, or through Portuguese, but mostly through Brazilian missionaries. So, it really has, the Lord has really raised up many wonderful missionaries from Brazil who came to Mozambique and speaking the same language, just have had such an opportunity to work for the Lord, yeah. yeah. Yes. What are some
1: prerequisites that we can give
2: for your mission? Very good. That was my last slide. Um, Yes, so prayer points for Mozambique, Uh, pray for biblical churches to grow and be planted across the country. Um, That is a very big one and that includes um, theological material, biblical teachers, trainers, um, so many pastors I know, and have met, don't even have a Bible at times, they only have a partial Bible. Um, I'm not necessarily like, oh, you have to have a degree in theology to be a pastor, but you at least should be able to know how to read and study and expound Scripture. And uh, very few pastors have that ability, sadly. Um, So yeah, pray for the growth and planting of biblical churches across the country. Um, Pray for peace in the North where terrorism is spreading. Uh, We don't know what will happen there. Um, It is... Also ministry opportunity, so do pray also that uh, the Christians will stand up and grasp this opportunity that we have to reach out to the hurting people. Um, but yeah, it is uh, truly a savage terrorism. I mean, the stories you hear they just decapitate women and children and just murder and slaughter them in absolute horrendous ways, um, torture them. Yeah, so please do pray for the peace in the north. Uh, pray for religious freedom to be upheld, because what's happening now with the uh, Islamic attacks, the government is using this as a reason to tighten religious freedom. So it's in the guise of limiting Islamic extremism. But the thing is, the laws they are enacting doesn't just effect, affect the Islamic extremists, it actually affects all other areas of religion as well, which <coughs> includes um, limiting um Uh, how you register a church like they've moved before you had to have five no sorry 200 members no pardon me it is 500 members i think yeah you had to have five thousand people uh, 500 people to open a church signed adults to open a church um, and now they've changed it this year to it needing to be two thousand people to open a church so practically You can't open a church. So we actually, with uh, that uh, pastor, Francisco, who I showed, the Brazilian missionary, in connection with him, just before this legislation we went through, uh, we and a couple other Reformed churches together uh, gathered uh, over 200 signatures and uh, submitted our application before it was raised to uh, 2,000. So we are hoping that we will officially be registered as a church and we will all be sister churches, Lord willing. Um, but yeah, they're also planning to tax churches now, um, and there are still a lot of uh, debates about Christian schools. They are trying to limit. Like I said, it, the bill had been dropped in Parliament, but from our understanding, they are still seeking ways to limit religious teaching in schools. So yeah, we we really don't know what the future of religious freedom will be in the country. Um, compared to before, where we didn't even think about it, it was just such a free country. And this is very much just the government. Uh, the people themselves are very, very open to religion, very open to spiritual talk. Um, as I said, such a spiritual country and nation. Um, yeah, it's very much the government, not the people. And then uh, pray for believers to grasp opportunities we have now in sharing the gospel and discipling freely while we can as I said, we do feel the ropes tightening, but the reality is we do still have such open doors, evangelizing, discipling, teaching. I mean, we are practically illegally functioning as a church for years now. Um, Even during COVID, we still had our services, hush, hush, and nobody cared. And so uh, we don't know how long that will go on. So we do need to take and seize opportunities that we have, especially in raising up uh, biblical preachers and leaders uh, who can stand for religion for Christ in, a, in the country if it becomes a closed country and all of us foreigners are kicked out. Um, yeah, and then please pray for our family, and for our health, and for our work, our spiritual health as well, for our ministry, the school, the church, um, the discipling, all the different areas of the young people, the children's ministry, and for my dad's construction work, which supports our work, and is also a way to witness uh, to clients, to his own workers, and to be a testimony of what good Christian workmen should should look like, because uh if you look at Mozambican homes, you look at the old Portuguese building, which, after some over a hundred years, is still standing very strong with no maintenance, and you look at a Mozambican house built maybe two years ago and it's full of cracks, and half the ceiling is collapsing, and yeah you know, they they cut corners very much, so to to have to be a, a, a construction company doing good, um, high-quality work is a big testimony as well in the country. Um, and then, yeah, please pray mainly above all for the name of Christ to be lifted up and glorified in Mozambique, in our family, in our ministry, but throughout the whole Mozambique as well.
1: Yeah, thank you.